have a seat. Great to have all of you guys here. So uh, Heidi and I, that's my wife, uh, have been suffering for the gospel this week in San Diego, California at a, uh, at a pastor conference. And um, we were uh, on our way home uh, this morning uh, from San Diego so we could be here with you all this evening. And we're anxious to get home. And every once in a while I have these weird moments uh, on a plane. I'm sure you have some of those as well. It could have been the fact that uh, as we were nearing home, uh, the woman sitting next to me, uh, had some motion sickness and um, uh, all over the place. That that could have been what sparked it. Um, but uh, but every every once in a while, I have this moment on a plane where I I ponder the reality of the dynamics in the plane. That that in um, this little enclosed metal structure, I think it's metal, um, something significant, right? In this enclosed structure. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of dynamic amongst uh, the people that are in uh, the plane. And so I started just looking row by row and looking at like the, you know, the, the kids and the parents and just taking in for a second the, the weight of how many different stories were represented in this little plane. Uh, people that were coming from varied perspectives and hurts and joys. And then honestly, I started thinking about us gathered here this evening and from time to time, it uh, weighs heavy on me, uh, the amount of different kinds of people that are here. Um, if we were to go person by person in this room with a microphone, and you had uh, 15 minutes, each of you, yes, we would be here for a good uh, three weeks, but <laughs> if you had the microphone and we just started passing it around, and you shared uh, all the things that you had thought this week, and the things that you had struggled with, and the things that were burdening you and the things that brought you joy. And you were just to spew it all, put it all on the table, no holds barred. You had to be honest. Didn't lie. It would be a really heavy moment for us, wouldn't it? I think we would find out things about one another that might be repulsive. I think that we would um, have this opportunity to maybe finally see what each other are. Um, uh, that's why my hope and prayer is that uh, this place and these people uh, can be a refuge for you all. That, uh, that this place and these people can be an opportunity for us to gather and where you can bring all of that stuff, some weeks more than others, some weeks more hurtful than others, some weeks more joyous than others, and that together, week in and week out, we can just gather here and, and say, like, God, what could you do in our hearts that would cause us to surrender to you all the more? Like, we're a bunch of messed up people in desperate need of something, and some of you don't know what you're looking for yet. Um, my prayer is that you would ultimately find the hope that I found, and that's in Jesus. And, and, and so I, I just I say all that to say, like, I'm, I'm heavy tonight with the reality that, um, that the church often is the biggest distraction for the church. That, that the people within the church are our greatest distraction in us becoming the church. Uh, when I was growing up, there were times where I felt awkward going to church because I had just broken up with a girl or she had broken up with me. And you knew that uh, even in the confines of the church, that you would be getting the cold shoulder from her, maybe rightfully so, right, from her family and friends. There were times I felt awkward um, as my family was going through a big ordeal of sin. I felt awkward going in because the church wasn't loving us well and or rather they were segregating us, calling us uh, uh, the ones that have blasphemed and not the ones that needed 
tough love. I remember feeling awkward as a youth pastor, um, fighting battles with parents who uh, uh, I would go as far as to say hated me, uh, going into a worship gathering where they would be singing and sneering out of the same mouth, that they would be uh, holding a hymnal book and at the same time giving me the dirty look of death, which maybe you've gotten at least from your wife or husband. Um, I remember feeling awkward. I, I felt awkward before within the confines of the church, uh, knowing that at times that there was unresolved tension uh, with someone that I was too cowardice or they were too cowardice to deal with it. It's interesting to me that sometimes this uh, is a place that's awkward relationally and that it's not a refuge, uh, that it's not a place that feels safe. I guess what I'm trying to say is that this place and the church uh, should be way more mature than your kid's baseball team and all the parents involved. That this place and uh, this church and the churches that we're a part of uh, should be way more relationally mature than any kind of social media that you are uh, participate in or play a part in or, or add comments to. That this place should appeal in comparison to the relational maturity of any other social club or organization. So why is it then that it doesn't often? Why isn't then that our relational maturity is actually way less than that of cultures? That you find the same backbiting in here that you would in the, bo in the boys and girls club, right? That you would find the same gossip here that you would in uh, this country club scenario. Why is that? I'm burdened by that. I don't know if you are too. I don't want that. That's not our prayer. That's not our hope. Our prayer is that people can come, know that they're safe and secure, that their sin isn't celebrated, but that the Lord Jesus is. And part of celebrating Christ is that He's sufficient for all of our sin. Are we together? Right? And so here's the cool thing about the scripture tonight is the word of God tonight is going to battle against one of what I believe is our greatest deficiencies in our relational maturity as a church. And so if you came tonight and you wanted some feel-good Oprah stuff, you wanted some, you know, some light-hearted uh, stuff with you know, nice pictures on the screen, you came to the wrong evening. We're going to battle headfirst into this text tonight. I'm really excited about it. And we're actually doing something completely different as well. This shouldn't be so different. Um, we're not doing anything on the screens tonight. You have Bibles in your seats and underneath your seats. I'm going to ask as best as possible that tonight you hold the Bible in your hand or at least share it. Uh, that you rid yourself of your phone for uh, an evening. Uh, even though you got the Bible on there, I know that every once in a while a text will fly in and soon you're distracted. So I'd ask you to open your Bibles um, and turn to James chapter 3. A lengthy uh, section of James that we're going to cover tonight, certainly a very famous section, a section that is very intense, a section that will challenge us all, and uh, when you guys have the page number to the, those Bibles, shout it out, James 3, anyone? There you go. Page what? 870, thank you so much, well done, you scholar, scholar of the word. James chapter 3, we're going to read all the way from verses 1 to 12. And then, my friends, we will rock and roll. You guys there? Sam there. Thank you so much. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies, their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Verse 5, so also the tongue 
is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's an interesting verse. Verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Can I just pause and say amen? Like these things ought not be so, James writes. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I know if you have spent any time in the church, um, this is a classic, a go-to text for many reasons. For us tonight, it'll be a text that I believe will, will buoyant truth in a different way. So let's start here in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now I've told you many times what's happening in James as he writes to the dispersion in Jerusalem. In other words, there was a tremendous amount of persecution that was coming on the church of Jerusalem. And, and what was happening in light of that was the church was driven underground. People were starting to meet like we meet on Sundays in small groups. They were in hiding. Uh, folks were dying that were connected to the church. And what starts happening because of that is teachers begin to rise up that are untrained, ungifted, and uncalled, if that's a word, right? Like all of a sudden because the church is dispersed, the leadership structure is getting a little bit mangled, all of a sudden you have uh, men and even potentially women at the time who are raising uh, to become teachers who shouldn't be. And James wants to remind this dispersed church in Jerusalem, yeah, you go, uh, good luck with that, but just know that those who teach are judged with a higher level of strictness. I confess this to you often that uh, those of us that stand on this pulpit, and I would even go as far as to say uh, the, even our life family leaders that teach on a week-in, week-out basis, it's a very intense calling because what we're communicating should be the truths of the Scripture. That why, that's why it should never be taken lightly by you or by myself. What I mean by you is you shouldn't just take me at face value. My prayer every single week is that what we're studying in the Word drives you at home back into the Word to confirm the things that have been shared. You see what I'm saying? That it wasn't just Mark's thoughts and hypotheses, that it was actually the Word of God that was speaking. And that only happens by you taking the Bible, sitting in your closet by yourself, not necessarily your closet, but that's what Jesus describes, being alone with Him in our Word, and you confirming what's being said in the Scripture. If every week you just come here and take what I'm saying at face value, I believe you've done yourself a disservice. Are we together? Now, it may not seem like that. That may seem contradictory. You may think like, well, but Mark, can't we trust you? I sure hope so. But my friends, what we're trusting is the Word of God and not a man. Are we together? Okay? And so what the Scripture says is, listen, uh, you need to understand that not all of you should be teachers. Well, what I see in the church in general is a massive uh, conglomeration of people who aren't satisfied with their gifts. The image that I have in my mind is, and you guys will all relate to this, I hope, on Christmas morning. Isn't it amazing? All the family comes downstairs or however your tradition works out. And all the presents are aligned by the tree or certain things are down there and and everyone comes, and it's inevitable, right? Especially if you have brothers and sisters. You start opening your presents, and within two or three seconds, really what you're wondering is, who got something better than you? You know what I mean? 
Like, do you remember when you got a Game Boy and your brother and sister got, like, the first N64 or something? You're like, seriously, this is handheld. That's, like, way more legit. Or whatever it may be, you know, like, you got a bike and they got, you know, some kind of, they got a better kind, a BMX or a Duffy. I don't even know if that's the right brand, but sounds right at the time. Like, like what, what I feel like we do is that the church comes together and it's, it's like Christmas morning. Like, we all open everyone's, like, we all open our gifts that God has given us. And he says, here's how I've made you. Here's the things I've blessed you with. And then what we do is we like look across the room and we're dissatisfied with what God's given us and we'd rather have something else because maybe that is better. Maybe it comes with more notoriety. Maybe it comes with a higher level of integrity. Maybe, just maybe, people will see me in a different light. You see what I'm saying? When God has blessed you with the gift to do this and instead you look across the hall and you're like, no, I want what that person has. And then the church is just in complete dysfunction because God has blessed you. It's a gift. That's why it's called a gift. With a specific, a specific set of things to edify the church so that together, when we come together, we're glorifying him in the way that we've been made to be as the body of Christ. Are we together, right? And so uh, the big challenge that James gives is, look, I don't, I'm not so sure you want to be a teacher, okay? And I'm not saying that, you know, all of you guys want to uh, stand in the, in the place that I do or in a lot of family leader's place or what have you. I just want to bring you into what James is saying. He gets specific, and then what he begins to do is to pull back from being specific and he fights this very generally. So he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Verse 2, look at this. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle uh, his whole party, or his whole body rather. I love uh, how this begins. We all, for we all stumble. We taught this a lot in Hebrews. Um, we're in a very uh, um, diverse religious culture. For we all stumble in many ways is the reason why we don't confess our sins to man and believe that we're forgiven. For we all stumble in many ways. Uh, that, uh, the Greek word there means all, okay? That means that every man, every woman uh, falls short of the glory of God, the scripture says. And so uh, anytime you find yourself confessing your sins to a man and thinking that there's forgiveness in that is, uh, is a point where you're confessing your sins to another failed and flawed man. Are we together, Right? Or if you think that by confessing your sins to myself, another leader, or even a good friend, and thinking that there's simple forgiveness in that confession, the Bible says there's healing in, in our confession, but not forgiveness. Forgiveness uh, comes in confessing our sins to the Lord Jesus, and because of His sacrifice, because of His grace, we're freed from our sin. All right? But He says, look, we've all stumbled in uh, many ways, in all ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what He says, He is a perfect man able also to a bridle his whole body. I think there's a, a couple interesting points uh, to this verse. First, it's easy to think that, uh, that you're the worst uh, sinner of everyone and then not claim victory in the grace of God. It's really easy to get so downtrodden by all of your difficulties and your failings and your sin that you never claim victory in the grace of God because you get pushed so far down in shame and regret. And so you look at this verse like we all stumble, right? And you're like, yes, I know I do. Like I'm the worst of all. And so there's no way God could ever. And then the other side of the coin is like the, the, the thought may be, yeah, we all stumble in many ways, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Like the ways I stumble are, are way uh, less than this guy over here, right? But what James does in clarifying this is, look, whatever comes out of our mouth is an indicator of the fact that we all stumble in many ways. He connects 
self-control and what comes out of our mouth. Did you guys see that here at the end of verse 2? Right? He is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body in what he says. There's a connection in what a man says and how he is able to control his whole body. Uh, case in point, Few Good Men. Have you guys seen the movie? Great movie. Uh, famous. You guys, have you guys seen the movie? Okay, Few Good Men. Uh, amazing scene. Uh, Jack Nicholas. Is that Jack Nicholson? I always get the golfer and the actor confused. Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, like epic scene. You guys have all seen it. They're going back and forth. Jack is staying really, really calm. Seems in control, right? And then all of a sudden, he, what does he say, right? Like, right? You can't handle the truth. And he yells it and he screams it. And all of a sudden, it shifts the whole dynamic in the room. Like, all of a sudden, everyone realizes, like, maybe he's not quite as stable as he appeared or seemed. And I'm not just talking about volume. I can uh, certainly get loud, right? But I'm also just talking about the, the ways or the phrases or the way that it cuts or the way that it comes off or the connotation that what you say has. All of those things reveal how self-controlled you are. What comes out of here shows full well how self-controlled you might be. That's why I ask you, uh, before we move a step further, what does your communication right now communicate about how self-controlled you are? Um, today, with your wife or your husband, what would your communication say about how self-controlled you are? I would imagine like some of you yelled at each other on the way here, right? And it was about something incredibly silly. Uh, James's point is what that reveals is your failed and flawed and desperate need of something. Um, because the self-control that comes in a bridled, controlled speech should be very, as he'll go on to say, tame. So he adds this here in uh, verse uh, 3 all the way through verse 5. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, a titanic moment for us. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of a great things. Remember the first time a kid called you something at school? Remember that? I was in second or third grade and a kid called me a moron. And uh, it's really, really interesting like how, like right now, for instance, if one of you guys called me a moron, it really wouldn't have the same effect, right? Um, in fact, many of you have called me a moron um, <laughs> earlier this evening. But uh, you remember the first time you came home from school, right? And, and mom and your, your parents could tell something was wrong. Uh, what's wrong, son? Uh, mom, you know, Billy uh, called me a moron. And, uh, and then it was classic, right? Like when you were growing up, at least when I was growing up, the next phrase out of your parents' mouth was what? Sticks, sticks and stones, right? May break your bones, but words can never hurt you. And I was like... False. No, that's not true. <laughs> that is absolutely not true. Like, I remember, like, my mom saying that, and it, like, feeling better because she sang it or something, but at the same time in my heart, I was thinking, no, no, actually, those words were incredibly hurtful. Like, when he called me a moron, like, that, like, it, it actually ripped into me, right? And, uh, you know, we, we sing that all the time. Maybe as we grow older, the thought is we grow thicker skin, or maybe it's just that we become better actors, Maybe, maybe the words that uh, we communicate to one another 
we just kind of let roll off our back until maybe one day they compile enough that it hurts deep enough. Uh, Isn't it interesting that some of the people that you love the most, you've said the most hurtful things to? The imagery that I'm really drawn to in verse 3 through 5 is the concept of a fire. Uh, It says, uh, so also in verse 5, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of many things. There at the end of verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. You may be aware, uh, you may not be, but it's a very uh, drought-ish, it's it's dry, it's a dry season for us, okay? (laughs) Some of you guys are appreciating that because it means less mowing of the lawn, right? Others of you who are gardeners and the such, uh, you're disappointed because now you have to water more frequently. Uh, either way, on the West Coast, it's very dry as well. And we watched, uh, Heidi and I would watch the news in the morning. And a lot of the talk in, uh, uh, in, on the West Coast right now is, of course, of forest fires. Uh, they said it could be a record year, like the worst year in a long, long time because of how dry it is. Uh, how many of you guys were Boy Scouts? Any Boy Scouts here? Okay, a few of you guys. Uh, John Shell, really? Wow, that's, a, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, I was not a Boy Scout, as is evidenced by all of my life, actually. Uh, um, but if I were a Boy Scout, um, or at least uh, uh, had any sense of um, common sense, I think you learn that when something is dry, uh, it, 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 it catches on fire easier, right? Like, do I need to put up a word picture for you guys to get right? Like, when something has more moisture, okay, uh, it's more difficult to ignite. So it's so incredibly interesting to me that the scripture uh, talks about what this very small piece of our body can do. And that's his point. Like a massive ship, the Titanic, for instance, is steered uh, very incorrectly, right? But by a very small rudder. Maybe it should have been bigger, right? Um, or the bridle that's in a horse's mouth controls it, halts it, makes it go faster, turns left and right. But it's very small. His point is that the tongue is a very small piece of our body, uh, some bigger than others, right? And yet it, it can set something ablaze. But something is more set ablaze when it's dry. And I'm really, really intrigued by the fact of what comes out of our mouth in the seasons uh, where the Word of God isn't softening our heart isn't feeding our heart in those seasons that maybe you would describe as dry. The Word doesn't seem to be speaking like it used to. Just in a difficult season, I'm burdened by some sin or this or that or this relationship that's falling apart. In the dry seasons, agree or disagree. What comes out of your mouth seems a little bit edgier. The tone a little bit more harsh. The love and grace that maybe once you had with that relationship or wife or husband or child because of your inability to get into God's word and and your heart becoming dry, like all of a sudden the words carry a bit heftier of an edge, don't they? Listen, it's not rocket science in my marriage. When we begin to combat in ways that I would say are not helpful, because there are combative ways that are helpful, at least in my marriage, right? kind of have a little bit of bickering, but it's kind of playful and fun. Then there are other times where words begin to cut. They begin to hurt. For me, it's a very easy understanding to know where my heart is. I'm dry. Heidi is dry. The Word of God isn't moistening our heart. It's it's not feeding our thirst. You see what I'm saying? It's not the wellspring of life that it describes itself. 
And so when my heart becomes dry, then this becomes a fire. Like it, it can light up anything in a moment, especially fueling anger or hatred. Right? And so often, like in, as Heidi and I, we get to a point where it's gone too far in our argument. And we've pulled out uh, things from the past. That's always your fail safe, isn't it? Things get a little heated. Oh, remember that last year? Like you pull up something or you bring someone's family into it, right? And all of a sudden the boxing gloves come on. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe you don't. Maybe it's just my marriage that's struggling sometimes. I'm not sure, right? But there's always this moment where we just pause. We're like, Heidi, Mark, like, have, have you been softened by the word of God? No, it's, it's been several days. I'm dry. It makes complete sense then. Because when your heart is being moistened by the word, when God's word is truly satisfying your thirst, then what begins to, to become a part of your language is the gospel. When you're feeding yourself with the gospel, guess what's coming out? The gospel. When the gospel is permeating your heart in such a powerful way that it transcends into all that you are, guess what the outcome is, my friends? Humility, love, and grace. It's not rocket science, is it? The more the disciples hung on the words of Jesus, the more their tone and their accuracy with the things that God would have them say were so closely aligned with Christ. And the farther they got away from that, my friends, this little piece of themselves could start a huge fire. And you have certainly been on both sides of that fire, haven't you? Real quick. Uh, and I don't want to like, bring up all kinds of hurt and pain. At the same time, I want to call it what it is. You've said some pretty damaging things, haven't you? Some people have said some things that in your heart are still flaring, aren't they? Maybe it's something that someone has said to you in the last couple days. It's consumed you. It's burning on the inside. It's even damaged you in such a way that you're not even able to talk about it because you're fearful that by talking about it, it would deepen the wound. Now that's what... Uh, this tongue does. And James is writing to who? To Jewish Christians. So this, so this is an issue in his uh, church community. And I fear that it also is one in ours. So the tongue is a small piece and yet it can start a ginormous fire. In verse 6 he continues to go on. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Now, as for me and my house, that's not like the most encouraging verse ever, right? Um, and if you're James and you're wanting to encourage uh, your church to how to use uh, their tongue a little bit more wise, all of a sudden he, can, uh, he adds uh, tongue and hell in the same sentence. Uh, I think this is what he's trying to say. I've talked about this before. Uh, I, like many of you, have many three or four second moments. You have these? Uh, things that pop into your mind just for three or four seconds that would completely ruin your life if, if you actually acted them out. Have you ever had these before? One of my most famous, I have them all the time. Uh, one of my most famous is Bob Costas was speaking at McKendry. Uh, you're familiar, maybe, uh, sportscaster. He was speaking at McKendry. And I was sitting in this crowd. Some of you guys have heard this story. I was sitting in the crowd, one of my most famous three or four second moments, sitting in the crowd, I become, you know, the campus ministry leader and, and uh, communicating the gospel consistently. And the thought went through my mind, what would happen right now if I stood up and I just started yelling at Bob Costas? You know, like, 
like cussing him out, just like, you know, just, and, and you know, you have these three or four second moments, and the prayer is like you actually don't act them out, right? Because that would be horrific. But what I realize always in, in most of these three or four second moments, and thankfully they don't last uh, long, is that like all of this life where you've built integrity and trust can just be gone in a second. Isn't it, isn't it so interesting? Isn't it interesting that I could say a few phrases right now on this stage that would ruin my ministry? I could stand up here right now, communicate a few things, and this whole room would, would be turned upside down a little bit. I thought about that, you know, Bob Costas. Like, if I stood up and did that right now, all of a sudden I'm on the front page of the McKendrian or whatever our newspaper was, right? Like, campus ministry leader goes off on Bob Costas. <laughs> Bodyguard tries to take him down, but he riles him and pushes it, you know. No. <clears throat> I think that's what James is trying to say. Like it's filled, with, it's filled with so much power and unrighteousness. First of all, because that's what you're born into, unrighteousness, sin. But if you let this thing run rampant, everything that you work for as far as integrity's sake, it'll be very damning. We've seen that in our culture, haven't we? Brothers and sisters in Christ who have built a lot of integrity in our culture and then all of a sudden said something in error. That cause a distrust and a distaste in people's mouth. It's a small tool, but my friends, a very powerful and weighty one. I think most evidenced by these next passages. Verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Uh, again, and you may be like me, as I kept reading over and over this, and I've preached this verse many times in the past, uh, I'm just like, I, this feels a little bit hopeless, right? It's filled with de de uh, deadly poison. No man can tame it. You guys know I don't like pets, but uh, I was um, thinking about earlier just when you tame a pet, in this case a reptile or a sea creature, right? I'm not sure how many sea creatures you guys have as pets, but when you tame a creature, what's the process that you undergo, right? I remember when my dad got a dog named Shaq, um, a chocolate Labrador retriever, appropriately named, right? And uh, the first thing that he uh, did with Shaq in trying to tame him was, was that he, uh, he tried to establish the authority, right? And, and, and so what he did was he, he, put a, he put a shock collar on Shaq. Have you guys used these for your children, right? They're brilliant. <laughs> but uh, he was trying to, to put a shock, uh, uh, you know, he was trying to establish authority. So what he did, put a shock collar uh, on Shaq and said, all right, listen, like, here's the parameters. If you go beyond these things, like, bad things are going to happen to you, Shaq. And, you know, sure enough, and kind of fun to watch. And I, you know, I don't want PETA to come after me, but you know, kind of like watch this dog, you know, he kind of like scoots back a little bit and my dad's trying to establish authority, right? And the next thing you try to do in taming animals or pets um, or your children is, is you set up, like, rules and boundaries and regulations. So first is, look, I'm leader. When I speak, you listen. The next thing is, is when I speak, like, here are the things that are boundaries. You cross these. It's not good, right? And then the third piece of taming something is it's once they fail, there's consequences, Right? 
for a dog or a pet, whatever it is that you've chosen on how to consequence size your pet, you know, your pet. There's many forms, I'm sure. And then at the same time, when they succeed, what do you do? Like here, have a 16 treats or whatever, you know, you do with your pet. And then the last piece of taming is, is consistency. Like, so you've gone through this whole process and now you have to keep doing it. Otherwise, what will happen? Like, the, the pet will just be like, no, I'm not, I don't have to be disciplined anymore because you've lost your discipline. But James says that no man can tame the tongue. But what is he pointing out? The boundaries are clear. There's certainly established authority. The reward is great. The discipline is intense. But consistency... Like, that's, that's where a man really falls short. Uh, because on, on one day, like, man can do this, but on the next day, though the authority structure is clear, like, God has clearly outlined for us what life is to look like. And again, he said, I, I've come to give you life and life to the full. He set boundaries that we often tow. And then he said, look, following me, Accepting my grace through my son Jesus means eternal life. Like, this is great. Distance from me means a life spent apart from me. And so you would think that that would breed in us a tamed tongue, consistency. But what James points out, and I think he's pointing to the person of Christ here, no man in and of himself can tame the tongue but you watch as the Lord sanctifies you or grows you as the Spirit becomes more alive in you, pretty soon that taming process through His Word truly sanctifies the tongue. The more you say, the more opportunity there is to fail. So those of you who talk a lot, that's an issue. Fair enough? I mean, just per capita. The more words, that's probably the wrong, uh, you know, the wrong way to phrase that, but the more words that come out of your mouth, the higher the risk is that some of them are going to be in error. So for some of you, it's just hard to tame because this is always flapping. You know what I'm saying? So James is like bringing us in, not apart from hope, but I believe to hope. And that's why those who think that James is just a, an issue of practicality, that he's beating us down with these hopeless rules and regulations, I personally believe James keeps coming back to Christ by saying, no man can tame the tongue, but watch Jesus tame your tongue. Watch the Spirit sanctify you, grow you. And pretty soon what you'll see is something that was setting ablaze fires all over the place is now calming hearts, breathing love. No human being, verse 8, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I'd like to hang here for a moment if I could. Um, I was thinking about ways that this is deadly poison. You, you, think, you think it's interesting that he used the word deadly? I don't know much about poison, but... I know there are certain poisons that just numb, that, that just like cause a limb to not work for a while. And then I also know there's other poisons that kill. Are we together? And so there's some poisons that have like a little bit less effect. But what he's saying is this, uh, the poison is deadly. And so I want to talk about a four, what I see of deadly poisons that this creates. The first is human exaltation. Anytime, in any way, shape, or form, we make much of man within the confines of the church, 
we're truly and fully to be exalting the Lord Jesus. Anytime any of us make much of man, it is a deadly poison. And my friends, it's very contagious. It spreads like wildfire. But anytime any man in any context sits on the throne that only Christ should, pretty soon the church finds itself worshiping an ideal, a person, and not that of the Lord Jesus. Are we together? And I'm not just talking about pastors. I'm talking about figureheads, uh, folks that you admire or adore. There's a healthy level of that. There's a respectful level of that. There's also a level where human exaltation, maybe even just about yourself, becomes deadly poison. You know when you're around folks that all they do is talk about their story or every pain that you have just comes back to them. You're like telling them about the worst day of your life. You know, you just poured out your guts. They interrupt you and say, well, dude, you should have experienced my day yesterday. You know those people? It's like, seriously, like shut your yapper, you know, your tongue is, you know, making my face catch on fire right now. Like, this is horrible. <laughs> like a Titanic ship, you know. We have to in ourselves kill uh, human exaltation. I believe the best way to do that, and this is um, tough, I believe the best way to do that is when folks are talking about themselves in a way where you sense pride that, that we have the love enough to encourage our brothers and sisters. You know what, I just noticed you spent the last 25 minutes talking about yourself and not asking a darn question of me. I just realized that you spent the last section, like all you're doing is boasting about yourself and the, the greatness of yourself or the depression of yourself. And you haven't paused for one second just to see like, what God's doing in my heart or how things are going over here. Could we talk through this? Could we wrestle this? I want to help you grow. Why? Because it's a deadly poison. And what happens is in a church setting, if it becomes filled with self-centered uh, human exaltation, you see what happens? Then Christ just gets diminished, completely diminished. And if we find ourselves there, then we are completely apart from the gospel. Are we together, right? Uh, so the second thing is, uh, is of course, um, one of my favorite things to talk about uh, is gossip. I've been the victim of the deadly poison that it is. I'm sure you have as well. Uh, and if you've seen uh, the rumor weed, the VeggieTale, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, a few of you will maybe watch it later. <laughs> a gossip is anything that you say about anyone that is negative and can be taken in a negative tone to someone else. Something that's not encouraging. And we hide it and mask it in all kinds of ways. Yeah, I'm not so sure what so-and-so is doing when they're doing that over there. But, man, they're a great person. You know, I mean, they're awesome, really, at the end of the day. Well, what are you talking about? Well, you know, that one thing that they I'm not sure what they were thinking of. But, man, like, their heart, they have a great personality. You know what I'm saying? Like, we cut and then we mask with pleasantries. Uh, many of you guys know, and those of you that are going through the MV starting on Monday, uh, that... One of the big uh, principles of Matthias's lot is that if you want people to be vulnerable, then you have to kill gossip because it is a deadly poison. And the deadly poison that it is is it tells everyone that you can't be real. And when gossip takes hold of a church, which it often does, then everyone just becomes fake. Everyone. Because the first person that raises their hand and says, my marriage is horrible, then instantly gossip runs the show. First person that says, hey, listen, I'm struggling with pornography, then pretty soon gossip runs the show. And every other porn addict goes behind the closet. Doesn't talk ever again. If that happened to that guy, there's no way I'm ever confessing my sin in front of that people. But it's beautiful when all of a sudden confession of sin is met with love and grace and pointing to the gospel and not gossip. You see what I'm saying? Like we have a couple options. 
Uh, you guys will hear this too, if, uh, those of you that are going through the MV. The biggest way to stop gossip is when uh, someone is uh, chatting about someone else to you in a negative tone. And listen, this is happening all over the place. It's rampant. And I'm tired of it. Anyone else? I'm tired of it. The, the Facebook stuff, the little slide comments because you've built a nice relationship with someone that you think you can get away with it. I don't care if it's your family member. It's still gossip. I don't care if it's your wife that you're speaking about someone else negatively. Does the Bible give exemptions? Hey, listen, you can talk about anyone however you want with your wife. That's completely fine. And you know what I'm doing when I'm doing that? I'm fueling in her anger towards that person that maybe she's never felt before. Are, are you guys together? But we mask it with, well, oh, but they're my husband and my wife. I can talk about anything. Well, yeah, it better, but it better be gospel-driven and Christ-centered. And anything better be uh, lifting the name of Jesus high and not tearing down the church, your brothers and sisters. Of all places, the family should be the one place we should be turning each other to Jesus and not constantly tearing others down. Now, you guys know, I think there, there is a point where an apple is an apple, but you better search your heart in that. I talked about this with my lot family a couple weeks ago. Like sometimes... You have to call something what it is. If a person is getting drunk every single night, like what do you call that? That person is clearly struggling with alcohol. That's true. Now how that is framed and talked about, that's where it becomes gossip. We together? Listen, this person's struggling. We need to wrap around them in love. Or hey, did you hear so-and-so was over the deal again? Like what are they thinking? So the way to battle it is, uh, when someone begins to speak any, any of that, even your wife or husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, child, you stop them, you say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go and talk to that person you're just talking about, and you're going to share all, everything that you just shared. And then uh, I'll be there with you just to help fill in any details or gaps that you left out, right? <laughs> I'm completely fine if in this church people are fearful to gossip. Our elders share that heart. I'm completely okay with that. And if all of us embraced this kind of mentality, people would be so fearful to say anything in a negative slant about anyone else that all that would be coming out of our mouth is true, positive encouragement and exalting the Lord Jesus. It's a deadly poison. It will kill us. Do you guys understand? At any point, gossip could kill this whole thing. Turn people against people, a church against a church, Family against a family. It's a deadly poison. Oh, the third thing uh, is daggers, I call them. Uh, dagger is like a little small knife. Um, I, again, John Shell, as a Boy Scout, would know this. I wasn't, but... No. What daggers are, are those like sharp things that you hold in your pocket for the right time. And typically in a marriage, it's with your wife or your husband... But if you've grown a relationship long enough with someone else in a friendship, like you start building up those daggers just in case you need it. I already mentioned it. Like often it's bringing up someone's family. Often it's, it's calling out something in anger that you've been waiting to, share, uh, to, share, to, to say and share, but you've been uh, so cowardice to speak it. Those of you that are married, I would imagine this has happened. Things have got a little bit heated pretty soon. Like you, you put your hand on the dagger, you're waiting. You take one more step and this is coming out, right? 
and the, the wife or the husband, they, they speak that thing and they finally get you riled up enough and boom, here it comes. Oh yeah, well your mom this, right? That wasn't an attempt at a mama joke, it really wasn't. It was so 90s, right? Um, and you know what a dagger does? It, it sticks in, it hurts, it digs. I know full well there have been things that I've said to my wife that are still, unless she's still hurting over, that I should have instantaneously repented. Let's think about daggers. They do permanent damage. They scar. Are we together? Have you ever like thrown a dagger? You're like, no, no, like please, you know, and you're like trying to get it back and it's, you know, it's too late. They're a deadly poison. And for us as a church, they will kill us. They could potentially kill your marriage. Friendships, relationships that you have. This is what this little thing in your mouth does is it has the potential to create deadly poison. And the last and final thing that I'll share is, uh, is deceit. We're just, we're great liars. And we've convinced ourselves that, you know, the old classic white lie isn't really lying. It's just shading the truth a bit so that we look all right on the end. A deceit in the church community is a deadly poison. It's infectious. It will grab us. It will turn this whole church on its side. Why? Because you start believing that the deceit is true. And then when finally you realize it was never true, then it creates the other three poisons that I just described. Deceit is what brings the daggers out the quickest. Deceit is what brings out gossip the quickest. Deceit is what brings up human exaltation the fastest. And those of you guys who have really been hurt or harmed by that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When someone lied to you and you found out, it was like, boom, like here comes the grenades, right? And that actually would have been a machine gun there, right? The grenade, wrong motions, right? He goes on to say this in uh, verse 9, and the weightiest piece of this whole text here. Uh, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this ought not be so. Um, so you're singing your song to your Lord praising Him and exalting Him all the words feel good and then you'll walk right out of these doors and out of the same mouth that you just said your Creator you tear His creation down out of the same mouth that said you're gracious and merciful you speak to people and about people looking like he's not gracious and merciful. The Lord could never save you. He could never forgive you. Honey, have you heard what that person did? No way the Lord could ever love them. When the gospel that I keep learning about every single day is, I am never too far from the love of God. And when I'm exalting and praising and glorifying that God and then taking down his creation, especially his church, his people, 
the people that he's saved and that he's breathed into and that he's blessed the Holy Spirit with, especially those people. I've taken down those people when I've downgraded those people to peasants in the kingdom of God when the scripture calls them sons and daughters. Then my friends, this is a deadly poison. The same tool that was used to praise is the same tool that should be purged Ridded of every kind of deceit, dagger, human exaltation, and gossip. Are we together? Does it burden anyone else that we can come together corporately as the church and then walk directly out those doors and judge and ridicule people we were sitting by? That we would have the audacity in our heart instead of pleading to the Lord maybe to change their heart because we notice something in them or to finally approach them in love and grace, seek them in relationship. That we would have the audacity, honey, are you serious about that person? Like, come on, what a joke. The scripture says like none of us are perfect. We all stumble. We are all in need of the grace of God. And until we realize that, my friends, then this will be a deadly poison. When you realize we're all on equal playing field. We're all in need of His grace. We're all in need of salvation. We're all in need of the person of Christ. When that happens across the board, then the gossip will be killed. Then the human exaltation will be killed. Then the judgment will be killed. Any kind of deadly poison soon becomes encouragement and worship and the glory of God. And so you're like, Mark, what do I do? I don't know. Shut this for a while and not say a word. We're going to get to the real issue in a second, but I learned early on, my mom said sticks and stones, yeah, and uh, she also said, um, like Mark, like what comes out of here, it's never coming back. That's why James adds this analogy, it's kind of a, Analogy ridden, metaphor ridden scripture. Uh, does a spring uh, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Uh, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So, what he's saying is like the double sided mouth that you have, like it should be impossible, but it's not. Like out of this mouth is coming fresh and salt water, and that sh- should not be possible. It ought not be so. You're like, Mark, but he just said we were going to fail. Yeah, but James also said it ought not be so. God should be doing a work in us. The water should be drenching our hearts. Our hearts as as believers, listen, I'm going to say this should not be dry. The word of God is rich and thick. And the scripture says never returns void. And the scripture says it's alive, living and active. If the word of God is living and active, and if the scripture says it's written on my heart, that I'm sorry for those of you that have a different theory, then this should never be dry. The spirit is inside of me. And for those of you guys who want to make an argument that the spirit's dry, then we have better things coming. Because I don't think that's true. Agree? The spirit is not dry. The spirit is alive. The spirit is moving. It's active. It's producing fruit. Our dryness is our unrighteousness, is our sin that has gripped us, pushed us down in shame and regret, caused us to forget the grace of God, and then what comes out of here? A double-edged mouth. Not a double-edged sword that the word should be to our, uh, to our heart, a double-edged mouth that says, oh God, you're so good, 
And yet, oh God, you did such a horrible job with this piece of your creation. They're far beyond your grace. Now stand with me. I want to show you another passage. You can leave your Bibles in your seats. I'm just going to read it for you. Just notice this the first time. Connection all this. Last week, if you were here, we were talking about... um, a tree that appears to have tremendous good fruit and then on the back side reveals itself as barren, as dead. Now Jesus in a different text than what we read last week in Matthew 12, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for uh, the tree is known by its fruit. Well said last week, that's true. Uh, a tree is known by the fruit it produces. Uh, what we said is that the Spirit which is given to believers, is producing fruit. That's what the Spirit does. You brood of vipers, Jesus goes on to say. That's not a good term in the Scripture. How can you speak good when you are evil? And here's where the famous line that I know so many of you know, have heard, you've you've read this, you've studied this. It's in this context that he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, I say all the time, the Bible's either true or not. Agree? And we believe here at Matthias that this is the inspired word of God, that every word of it is inerrant, is true, is powerful, is living. And so if the Lord Jesus, in this sermon, says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, then that means that every word that is uttered is a revelation, reveals where my heart is at. Period. Now it's that point and that point alone that begins to push me back in my seat a bit. Because I start thinking about the things that I've said. The words I've uttered to my wife. The slant of anger to my kids. The begrudging statements I've made about others whom I should love. I start thinking about all that. And you know what it says? Mark, maybe your heart ain't really what you think it is. And the reason I believe James is riddled with grace, because what it does in my heart, is it says that I need a whole lot more of you, Lord. I need your word to quench my thirst. I don't want this to be dry. So God, please continue to moisten my heart with your powerful truths. So then what comes out of my mouth is the gospel. Is the glory of you as you're renowned. And not tearing down or gossip or human exaltation or anything else. May it always be exalting to you. And the coarse joking that you've gotten comfortable with because these friends and relationships are cool with it, it's nonsense. It ought not be so. Our heart is bleeding out of our mouth. And for each of us tonight is revealing where our heart is at. And that's why Jesus ends this text by saying this. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account of every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. And so I sit back in this moment 
And I rest in something else Jesus told Satan. That it's by the words of God that we're fed. That it's those words that are the bread of life. The man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from him. So I say to all of us, our only hope is Christ tonight. That's it. He has to do a work in our hearts. He has to change us. We have to be different than the culture. These relationships in here must look more solid and and have substance and be able to rebuke one another in love and challenge and encourage one another in the gospel. We must reveal ourselves as the church, as his followers, and that can only be done by him. Amen? So I want to pray right now for his power and his spirit to change our hearts. That's it. That's, he has to do it. So join me in this prayer and let's just welcome the Spirit in this place. God, I, I plead to you through your Son, Jesus, that your Spirit would come down in this very moment and would convict and would change our hearts and would draw us to you more in such a way, God, that every word out of our mouth would reveal our heart and then our heart would eternally be softened by the truth of your gospel. The good news that we're alive in you and not dead anymore, that our transgressions were nailed to the cross. Lord, please help us rest in that. I pray that you'll change our hearts. We won't be able to muster up enough strength to do it on our own. So God, I ask that you would do it for us. Change our hearts. Oh God.